I want you to turn with me to the first book in your New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. If you're a guest with us today, we've been uh, working through this section of Matthew's Gospel for several weeks now, and we've come to the critical moment uh, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 16, and we'll begin reading in verse 13. And when I speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning, life's ultimate question. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. And this is what the Word of God says. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said... Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This passage represents the climax in the teaching ministry of Jesus, as well as his disciples' final examination, an examination that consisted of one crucial question, life's ultimate question. A question that every single human being must face and answer. Who is Jesus Christ? The answer to this question is of monumental importance. For the eternal destiny of every human soul rests on the answer to the question, Who is Jesus Christ? So, who do you say? Jesus Christ is. More than just a matter of correct theology, our answer to life's ultimate question will determine where we spend our eternal existence, in either heaven or in hell. For two and a half years, Jesus had been moving to this moment, teaching and reteaching, affirming and reaffirming, building and rebuilding, and demonstrating over and over again the truth of who he was in order to establish it completely and securely in the minds and the hearts of his disciples. From Luke chapter 9 and verse 18, we learn that Jesus posed this all-important question to the disciples just after he had finished spending time alone with God in prayer. And from Mark chapter 8 and verse 27, we learn that 
Jesus and his disciples had not yet arrived fully into the city of Caesarea Philippi, but they were passing through some villages. And at this crossroads of heathenism and Judaism, Jesus left time with his disciples to give them this question, a question that every person must answer, a question that every religion must one day answer. Friends, Jesus Christ is the heart of Christianity. Christianity is Christ. And without Christ, there is no Christianity. And to truly know who Jesus is, we must understand two great things about him. Who he is and what he did. In theological textbooks, these two points are referred to as the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And here in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew highlights for us both the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And in this passage that we've read together this morning, we are confronted with the person of Christ as Jesus asks his disciples and as Jesus asks you and me life's ultimate question. So would you notice with me first of all this morning in verses 13 to 15 the question posed. Matthew says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now the district of Caesarea Philippi was originally named after the Greek god Pan, who according to pagan mythology was born in a nearby cave. Caesar Augustus had given this region to Herod the Great, who in turn erected a temple in Caesar's honor. And then Herod's son Philip inherited the land. He greatly enlarged the city and he renamed it after Caesar. And because Herod's son Philip was a man of pride and because he wanted to be renowned throughout the land, he attached his name to the end of it. And thus we have Caesarea Philippi. What you need to understand about this region in the context of the passage before us this morning is that it was strongly identified with various religions. Along with the temple built in honor of Caesar, this district was a center for the worship of Baal. And there were numerous shrines that were erected to the Greek god Pan. And so when Jesus and his disciples came into this district of Caesarea Philippi, they came in the midst of paganism, idol worship, and false gods. And it was in this region, in this district, that Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked them who their loved ones, who their friends, who their family members, who those that they interacted with in the community said that he was. The people 
in verse 13 that Jesus referred to were the Jews, God's chosen people who were waiting the Messiah. Now, let's be clear this morning. It wasn't that Jesus was unaware of what people were saying about him. Jesus posed this question to the disciples because he wanted them to think critically and clearly about the statements that people were making about him. And he wanted to confront them once and for all with his true identity. Jesus, in essence was asking the disciples about the thoughts of those who had a positive impression of him and who recognized him to be more than an ordinary religious leader. He was wanting to know what those who had heard his teaching and seen his miraculous power on display truly believed and said about him. What was the final verdict of these people concerning the Son of Man? And it's interesting that Jesus would use the title, the Son of Man, right here at the beginning of the passage. This was his favorite title for himself. It was used over 80 times in the New Testament to refer to Jesus. It is taken from the book of Daniel, and it was a title that clearly recognized the person who had this title as the Messiah. And Jesus used this title, the Son of Man, to emphasize his humanity. And so he was saying to the disciples, turn your focus to me. Who do all of the people in your sphere of influence, who do they say that I am? What is their opinion of the Son of Man? What do they think about the claims that I've been making? What do they think about the works that they've seen me do? Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And you'll notice in verse 14, the disciples summarize all of the attitudes that were prevalent among the people of the day. For some... Like Herod, they believed that Jesus was the reincarnation of John the Baptist and that he had come back from the grave and that he was preparing the way for the Messiah. Others, the disciples say in verse 14, believed that Jesus was a reincarnated Elijah, the prophet who was considered the most supreme prophet of the Old Testament the one in whom the Lord said that he would sin before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. They thought that Jesus was Elijah, making the way for the day of the Lord. The disciples say in verse 14 that still others identified Jesus as the prophet Jeremiah, another one of Israel's most revered prophets. The Jews held to a tradition that believed that Jeremiah had hidden the Ark of the Covenant in the altar of incense at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, and that before the Messiah came, Jeremiah would come again and he would restore all of them and usher in the age of the Messiah. And so some of the people believed that Jesus was Jeremiah. John the Baptist. Elijah, Jeremiah, preparing the way for the Lord, 
having a fire and intensity about him, weeping and mourning over the people like the weeping prophet Jeremiah. These are the views of the people. And to summarize it all, at the end of verse 14, they say, and the rest of the people believe that you are just one of the prophets who's been risen from the dead. You'll notice that there's a similarity to their responses. In each instance, the people considered Jesus to be the forerunner of the Messiah, but not the Messiah himself. He had come back from the grave with miraculous and supernatural powers, but there was no way that Jesus could be the Messiah himself. They were in a bind. No one in their right mind could deny what they had seen Jesus do and what they had heard Jesus say, but they were unwilling to recognize Jesus for who he really was, the long-awaited promised Messiah, the Son of Man. Do you know what happened to these people? They were so close to Jesus, they missed him. And it is a warning. It is a reminder to every single one of us this morning that you can worship you can read, you can study, you can listen, you can do all of these things and be so close to Jesus that you miss him. You miss who he really is. You speak highly of him. You have regard for him. And yet, because you don't fully believe in him, you end up denying him. And that's just what these people did. They were so close to the truth, they missed it. And in verse 15, after the disciples give all of these answers from the multitudes and the crowds to Jesus and to his ultimate question, and Jesus turned the tables and he looked at them and he said, but who do you say that I am? Now look carefully at the text, friends. Jesus is emphatic. He uses the word you in verse 14. It is used in the plural, and it is emphatic. And listen to me, it is personal. Jesus was asking every single one of his disciples to declare once and for all their verdict and their thinking concerning his identity. I know what the people are saying about me, but you, you disciples who've been with me for two and a half years, who do you say that I am? It's a personal question. And it's the same question that Jesus is asking all of us this morning. This is the most important question that could ever be asked of the disciples. It's the most important question that could ever be asked of any of us. Because if the disciples got it wrong, nothing else that Jesus said to them would matter. And if you and I get it wrong, nothing else that Jesus says matters. Who do you say that I am? 
The answer to this question is the key to understanding everything. It's the key to understanding everything that Jesus taught. It's the key to understanding everything that Jesus did. And it is the key to understanding everything that Jesus will teach the disciples in the rest of this chapter and moving forward in the Gospel of Matthew. And what I want you to know this morning, what I want you to hear clearly, emphatically, and personally this morning is that without a right understanding of who Jesus is, you'll never have a right understanding of what Jesus has done. If you don't understand who Jesus is for you personally, you will never understand what Jesus has done for you personally. The disciples knew most of the people's views of Jesus were inadequate, and now Jesus has confronted them, and they've got to answer this ultimate question for themselves. Just as the people of Jesus' day had an opinion of who he was, so too in our day do people have an opinion of who he is. Here is a sample of some of what people say. The Jehovah's Witnesses, who by the way are very popular and willing, say that Jesus is Michael the Archangel and he is no other than the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. The Archangel Michael, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses, is Jesus. The Mormons, who are also very popular in Wheeling, you may have had them knock at your door. They say in their documents, Jesus, our elder brother, was begotten in the flesh by the same character that was in the Garden of Eden and who is our Father in heaven. They go on to say that Lucifer, the son of the morning, is our elder brother, and Lucifer is the brother of Jesus. Did you hear that? They go on and they say that Jesus was married at Cana of Galilee, and he had many wives, including Mary and Martha, and he had many children from them. They say that Jesus was the first baby born to God in heaven, and when God in a physical body had relations with Mary, his own daughter, he is the spirit brother of Lucifer, the Mormons. Islam says that Jesus was no more than a mortal whom Allah favored and made an example to the Israelites. They are unbelievers who say God is Messiah, Mary's son. So if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're an unbeliever. The Hindus, they say that Jesus is one of 330 million gods. Friends, this is life's ultimate question. And people living around us, embrace some of these ideas that I've mentioned this morning and many others that I have failed to mention this morning concerning the identity of Jesus. Some believe that Jesus was a good man. Others believe that he was a great moral teacher. Others believe that he is one God among many. And so I ask you this morning, personally, directly, emphatically who do you say Jesus is because your 
answer to that question rests for all eternity. And you, listen, you will never, you will never, 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 never be able to answer that question based on a poll in the world. You will only be able to answer that question correctly when you are confronted with the claims of the Word of God. It does not matter what the world says about Jesus. It doesn't matter what others say about Jesus. Listen to me. What matters this morning more than anything else in the world is what you say about Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? Because the decisions of the crowd, the decisions of family members, the decisions of co-workers, the decisions of friends, boyfriends, and girlfriends, they will never, ever, 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 ever substitute for your decision concerning Jesus. So the question is posed. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, we not only see the question posed, we also see the confession proclaimed in verse 16. Matthew writes, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You knew it would have to be Peter, right? Who of all the disciples would answer the question first? Peter. And Peter, representing all of the disciples, responds to Jesus' question. And you'll notice in verse 16 that his comments were brief. They were emphatic. And they were decisive. It's Peter's personality on display. And you'll notice he uses the word you. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you know how you interpret that? You and you alone, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And notice something else that's very interesting in the text. Notice the word thee repeated three times in his statement. Do you see it? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is an exclusive, passionate, powerful claim from Peter's lips. And his answer is loaded with theology. The word Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah, God's predicted and long-awaited deliverer of Israel. It literally means that he is the supreme anointed one, that he is the coming high priest, king, prophet, and savior. That Peter looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the long-awaited king. You are the long-awaited priest. You are the long-awaited anointed one from God. You are the Christ. And then, straight from Psalm 2, he says, you are the son of the living God. And when he uses the word son, it represents an idea of oneness in essence. That because he is the son, he is one in nature with the father. So what, G what Peter was confessing here is, Jesus, you are the promise, long-awaited Messiah. Listen, and Jesus, you are God. 
You are the son of the living God. Listen to what he said in John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. But Jesus answered them, My father is working till now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, and he was making himself equal with God. Peter confesses what Jesus said of himself, that he is God. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus said this, I am and the Father are one. That if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, because I am God. And he's not just God. Look at your Bible. He is the Son of the living God. And the reason why Peter said living is because he was setting Jesus apart from all of the false idols and the pagan worship that was surrounding them in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus, you're not like this God of Pan. Jesus, you're not like Baal. Jesus, you're not like all of these other things that have been manufactured by men. Jesus, you are God. You are the Messiah. And by saying that he was the Christ, he put him on the throne of Israel as God's promised, anointed king, prophet, priest, and ruler. And by saying you are the son of the living God, Peter placed Jesus on the throne of the universe as the creator of all things. What a confession. And it wasn't just a confession. It was a proclamation. He was saying this with confidence, with conviction, and with passion. Now, you might be thinking to yourself at this point, if you know very much about the Bible, wait a minute, Pastor. This isn't the first confession that has been made. Haven't there been other confessions from the lips of the disciples throughout the Gospels before this one? You're right. There have been. On, on the first meeting with Jesus, Andrew proclaimed him to be the Messiah, and Nathaniel called him the Son of God, the King of Israel. When Jesus calmed the storm, if you remember from a few weeks ago, they worshipped him as God's Son. And Peter gave a confession of his deity and messiahship after he fed the multitudes and gave the sermon on the bread of life. But this confession was different than all the others. The others, after they made those confessions, they, they wavered. Here, the longer they've been with Jesus, the more they've heard, the more they've observed, the more they've understood. And while there'll still be moments of weakness in their faith, this is a pivotal moment in their lives. This is the moment when everything changed for these men. It was the moment when they began to really understand who Jesus was and what Jesus would do. Oh yes, in just a couple weeks we'll see again where Peter fails and weakens in his faith. But this moment, this moment is the moment where his faith becomes strengthened. And though he'll be weak at times, when we get to the book of Acts, we will see what this confession has done in his life. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want you to know this morning that there's no greater statement, 
No greater confession in the Gospel of Matthew than this verse. This is the pinnacle of the Gospel. Everything that Matthew has been showing us for 15 chapters leads to this verse. And everything that Matthew will show us for the rest of his Gospel will flow from this verse. This is the pinnacle, the greatest statement in the Gospel of Matthew. J.C. Ryle said it was so great that we should learn from it and we should copy it. And this is what he said. We shall do well to copy that hearty zeal and affection which Peter here displayed. We are perhaps too much disposed to understand this holy man because of his occasional instability and his thrice-repeated denial of his Lord. This is a great mistake. With all of his faults, Peter was a true-hearted, fervent, single-minded servant of Christ. With all of his imperfections, he has given us a pattern that many Christians would do wisely to follow. Zeal like his may have its ebbs and flows and sometimes lack steadiness of purpose. Zeal like his may be ill-directed and sometimes make sad mistakes, but zeal like his is not to be despised. It awakens the sleeping. It stirs the sluggish. It provokes others to exertion. Anything is better than sluggishness and lukewarmness in the church of Christ. Happy would it have been for Christendom had there been more Christians like Simon Peter and Martin Luther. And so if I can't get you to awaken from your slumber this morning, if I can't get you to see with fresh new eyes the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe J.C. Ryle can. That there's no place for lukewarmness concerning Christ in the church. That there's no place for shallowness and sluggishness and apathy in the church. Especially in these days, friends, this is the time to be more passionate about Jesus Christ than you've ever been in your life. So on behalf of all the disciples, Peter not only confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, he is the Son of the living God. What is your confession of Christ today? Like the disciples, do you find yourself fluctuating from doubt and faith, from weakness to strength? Are you fully convinced of Jesus' identity, that he is the long-awaited Messiah and he is the Son of God? College students, high school students, are you firm in your conviction of the identity of Jesus Christ, of who he is, and of what he has done? Or have you allowed the pluralism and the paganism of this culture? Some professor who thinks they know everything, but in the end really believe in nothing, have you allowed them to deceive you and to distort the truth about belief in Christ? college student, high school student, would you turn, would you turn from the thoughts and the teachings of the world, and would you turn to your Bible, and would you look high in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and see him for who he really is and for what he has really done for you? Who would you say 
college student, high school student. Jesus Christ is. Children. As you hear the Bible taught each week in this church in Sunday school, as you sit through long sermons of the preaching of the Word of God, as you listen to your parents teach you and have family worship at home, you are confronted week in and week out with the truth claims of Christ. And so children, today, today, would you confess like Peter that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of your life? That He's the Messiah and that He's God? Would you make that confession today? When we not only see the question posed and the confession proclaimed, finally we see the answer praised. Look in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus praised Peter for his confession by instantly blessing him and by calling him by his full name, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. John tells us in the book of 1 John that those who truly confess that Jesus is God, which is to confess him as Lord and Savior, are divinely and eternally blessed. He writes in 1 John chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God will live in Him. And He will live in God. That is a blessing. Now, it's interesting what, Pe- what Jesus does here in verse 17. He uses Peter's full human name, Simon Bar-Jonah. Do you know why he does that? Look carefully at the text in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And look at what comes next. For flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. He uses his name to connect the truth that he's about to explain. Simon Barjona, your flesh, your blood, your ancestry, your parents, all that is earthly has not revealed my identity to you. And look at what the text says. But my Father who is in heaven... Peter's confession was not from human interpretation. Listen carefully. It was from divine revelation. How did Peter make this confession? The same way anyone makes a proper confession of Christ. It is divine revelation that God, through the power of His Spirit, has to move on a person's life to open their eyes to see 
and to understand and to believe and to embrace the truth that is being presented to them concerning Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us, friends, that the only way a person can make a confession of Christ is through the grace of God working in that person's life. That's why Jesus said in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who can come to Jesus? All that the Father draws to him. All whom the Holy Spirit of God moves on their lives, opens their eyes, unplugs their ears, gives them illumination and understanding to what they're hearing and to what they're seeing and to what they are believing. This is the testimony of Peter and it is the testimony of every single person who has ever professed faith in Christ. And you say to me this morning, no pastor, that's not true. I believed, I understood, I confessed. Now, I say to you what Spurgeon said. He looked at the doorway and above it he said, first, whosoever will come and believe. And he walked through and then he looked through the door and he looked on the back side of the frame and he said, chosen before the foundation of the world. It seems that you're believing it seems that you're choosing. But what I want to say to you this morning is you are so blinded in your sin. You are so dead in the trespasses of your sin. Sin has such a grip upon you that it would be absolutely impossible for you to see, for you to hear, for you to know, and for you to understand until the Holy Spirit of God blows and moves on your life like the wind and opens your eyes and unplugs your ears and illuminates your mind and you say, yes, I understand. Yes, I see Jesus. Yes, I believe. Yes, I want him. This is God's supernatural work. That's why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-seven, 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Son except anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Peter wasn't convinced because of anything in and of himself, Peter had nothing to offer. And I'm going to prove that to you in a couple weeks in just a few verses where Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. So if Peter had nothing to offer, how, how could he make the confession? The power of God upon his life and upon his soul so that he would believe and confess. Jonathan Edwards summarizes verse 17 with two statements. To take on yourself to work out redemption is a greater thing than if you had taken it upon yourself to create the world. I'm not sure you heard that. He said you would be better off to try to create the world than to secure your own salvation through Christ. That's what he said. He also said, I am bold to say 
that the work of God in the conversion of one soul is a more glorious work of God than the creation of the whole material world. Do you, friends, do you understand what a miraculous event it is for one soul to be rescued from sin, hell, death, and the grave? It is so miraculous that the Bible says that in that moment when a soul is rescued, the angels in heaven rejoice. They rejoice over it and praise him. And you know why they do that? Because they long, Peter says, to look into salvation because they can't taste it and experience it for themselves. And so every time God rescues a soul from sin, they celebrate because they long to experience that. That's how great of a miracle it is. And so you say to me today, Pastor, if that's how a person comes to Christ, how can I be a Christian? I thought you'd never ask me that. I've been waiting the whole sermon, all this time, for you to ask that question. Are you listening? You repent. You acknowledge that you're a sinner and that because you're a sinner, you've missed the mark of God's holiness and his perfection, and you repent. And you know what repentance is? You're standing here in your sin. You realize you're a sinner. You know that you need to turn away from your sin, and that's what repentance is. You're saying to yourself, I'm sick of my sin. I'm sick of living this way. I'm sick of guilt. I'm sick of shame. I'm sick of failure. I'm sick of repeating the same things over and over again and being utterly miserable. And repentance is changing your mind about all of that and turning in a different direction. And you say, I'm no longer going to live like that. I'm no longer going to walk like that. God, I acknowledge my sin and I'm repenting. You repent. That's repentance. I'm just telling you Bible words here, friends. Bible words. You know what else you do? You confess. You know what confession is? It's saying the same thing that God says about sin. God says that the things that you do that disobey him and disobey his law are sin. And when you confess your sin, you don't argue with God. You don't justify what you've done. You don't rationalize it. You just simply say, God, you're authority over my life. You're my creator. And you've said that this is sin, and so I'm confessing it's sin. You confess it. You agree with God. So you repent, you confess. What else do you do? You believe. You believe what Peter believed. You believe that Jesus is who he said he was. The long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one who left heaven and came to earth and lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life and represented you in his life. The one who was nailed to a Roman cross and died and had the full weight of the sin of the world placed upon his body on that tree. Who represented you in his death. The one who was put into a tomb and three days later rose from the grave who represented you in his resurrection. You believe that Jesus lived for you. You believe that Jesus died for you. You believe that Jesus rose from the grave for you. And you believe that if you trust in him to be your savior, he'll forgive your sins and save you. You believe. And then you know what you do? You receive. It's a gift. Some of you are deceived. You're trying to work and earn being right with God. 
in your hearts, you say to yourself, I need to go to church. It'll make me more acceptable to God. In your heart, you say to yourself, I need to turn over a new leaf and stop these habits. And you work and you work and you work. And the whole time you're working, you keep failing and you keep thinking it makes you right with God. Only Jesus can make you right with God. You need to stop working and start resting in Jesus. And you know what will happen when you truly know Christ as your Savior? You won't feel like you have to come to church. You'll want to come. You won't get annoyed and irritated about things. You'll just be glad to be in the presence of other Christians. You'll sing different. You'll pray different. You'll listen to sermons different. Everything about you will change if you just believe and receive him. God has to open your eyes. He has to unplug your ears. He has to give you understanding. And listen to me, friends. You have to repent. You have to confess. You have to believe. And you have to receive. That's the only way. That's the only way you can become a Christian. So have you answered life's ultimate question? Who is Jesus Christ? Who do you say he is? On that hillside, surrounded by paganism and false idols, Peter had a firmness of conviction. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus Pan is not like you. Baal is not like you. Mohammed is not like you. Jesus, you are Lord of lords and you are King of kings. And I say to you this morning, out of a heart of love as your pastor and as your friend, in the midst of a world and a nation that has embraced full-blown paganism and pluralism, Jesus is asking every single one of us this morning the same question he asked the disciples. Who do you say that I am? That is life's ultimate question. And how you answer that question will forever determine your eternity. Oh, friends, if you don't know Christ today, there's no greater need in your life this morning. I've told you everything you need to know to become a Christian. Won't you come to Christ today? Won't you believe in him? Won't you make the same confession that Peter made? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. And we thank you for the confession made in this text. And we pray today, God, that all of us who know you as our Savior, that we would make this same confession with boldness and confidence, just like Peter. And we pray today for those in our midst who may not know Christ as their Savior, for those who may be deceived by the ideologies of the world, that in your sovereign goodness and grace, you would open blind eyes. You would open deaf ears. You would draw people to yourself today 
and they would confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, that's our prayer. And we pray in the days to come, God, that we would be further anchored to you and to your son and to your word. And that we would live with boldness and confidence in Christ in these days. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.